millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This is Sweet 16, the podcast series where musicians revisit that teenage year where everything changes. This episode was recorded in front of a live audience at the Arrays Tape Sound Gallery in London on Monday the 30th of April 2018. Our guest that night was Alexis Taylor from Hot Chip. He joined host Stuart Stubbs from Loud and Quiet magazine to talk about that teenage year and play some of the music that reminds him of being 16. Hi Alexis. Hi. So um, let's start by kind of setting the scene. You turned 16 in 1996. That's right. And you were at school in Putney yep. in southwest London at that point. That's right, yeah, Elliot School. Elliot School. So I'm going to talk to you a bit about Elliot School um, in a bit. Okay. But um, have you? Uh, did you grow up in Putney? Is, is that I, your home? I grew up in Chiswick. Okay. Um, and then I went to that school because my oldest brother had gone there and then my next old eldest brother, Angus, had gone there and it was just where I ended up going. It wasn't right where I lived, mm. but it was not too far away. So and you had to travel. How, how long was the travel into school? Uh, it was probably 45 minutes, I think. That's, lo- that's quite long for school. Yeah, it was unusual. I didn't really know anybody else who travelled that far. Yeah. There must have been something really wrong with Chiswick <laughs> school. Um, take two tubes and a bus. Um, or I would sit in a car that my dad drove when he was on the way to where he worked in Roehampton. So he would drop us off at school when we were staying at his house. Right, sure. In terms of Putney and that that area, what are your kind of outstanding memories of, of that time? What kind of place do you remember? Um, well, Putney wasn't that dissimilar from Chiswick, um, but what I remember really is, you know, that's where I went to school, so that's where I made all my friends, and um, went to a really good record shop called Beggar's Banquet, mm-hmm. um, sort of on the way home from school most days, uh, after a certain point. Um, so my memory my memory of that, you know, obviously memories of school itself and, and everything that goes on there, but the general area, I suppose, going out in the evenings, going to the Green Man pub. I didn't drink back then, but I still went to the pub with friends. Um, going to the record shop, buy, going to Al Price in Putney and buying various albums on the day they came out, you know, with, as soon as you finish school, going 
going and buying a new Prince album or yeah. spiritualized album or whatever it might have been. Um, don't know what else to say about Putney except, as you pointed out, it wasn't very near where I lived. <laughs> um, it's got well, Putney's got. To m- I might be wrong, but Putney's kind of got this reputation of being quite. I see it as quite sporty. Okay. Ro- yeah. Rowing. Yeah. And people that like to throw rugby balls around a park, but yeah, not really playing rugby. Just I didn't see any rugby players knowingly. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, I went to Cambridge, where it's also um, well known for for sports like the ones you've just mentioned. But um, I didn't take part in those same were you activities. Into, were you into any any sports? At yeah, 16? I, I played um, played tennis and I played basketball and football. Okay, quite a lot. Yeah. Were you good? I was okay at all of those, I think. Um, I That's really exactly where you want to be. Oh, sort of in the middle, yeah. Yeah, because if you're good, there's a pressure then <laughs> to make that your life. And if you're rubbish, it's, but that's no fun for anyone. Yeah. No, I, I, really, enjoyed, you know. I really enjoyed those, those sports and, and did them fairly seriously right. for a while. Um, so, yeah. I mean, my... my my family are quite kind of into sports as well, so it wasn't unusual to be doing sports on the weekends and and after school, and you know I was doing that as much as I was doing music. Sure, yeah. So what were your? Do you have any siblings? Yeah, I've got two older brothers, Angus and Will. Okay. Oh yeah, because they went to the school. Yeah. Uh, th- this is why I should have been listening <laughs> a minute ago. Um, well, it is quite <laughs> sort of intimidating in this <laughs> environment. So There's I all these people looking at us that are putting me off. Um, and how is your relationship with them? Were they kind of friendly brothers? Yeah, yeah. Um, they were good to you. We did we did lots of stuff together, um, skateboarding together, and um, listening to music together. You know, a lot of the music that I grew up hearing was through having those older brothers. Um, and I played music with Angus, who um, started to teach himself guitar and write songs when he was at school. So I was already, I was already playing piano and keyboards, and I'd had lessons in piano. But then, by having an older brother who who was playing a different instrument, I kind of got interested in that. And seeing him sing at school in various school concerts and write his own songs was quite inspiring. I think. Yeah. And maybe got me thinking about doing that a bit more naturally than if nobody above me was doing that. If you see what I mean. Yeah. Did you find that like what? what type of person we because when i was 16 the idea of singing in front of anyone that's hell um, i mean that's ri- that's yeah petrifying i, I Did know you? i know what you mean uh it's not for everyone definitely um, were, you, were you okay were you always somehow okay with it? no i wasn't always i i played the played the keyboard in a band and i wasn't a singer and we didn't really have a vocalist and then we did have my friend edward coughlin who took the picture of me there um, this is a great w- photo, he, by he the way. He was then the singer in a band. Okay. And at some point, I wrote a song that had words rather than just instrumental. And I thought, maybe I'll try singing it. Or maybe he didn't feel comfortable singing my words. So I kind of became the singer just by virtue of, of, of that kind of... Me just writing writing some lyrics, I suppose. And he took this photo. Where was this? Where Can you remember where that was taken? I think that... Might be in in Normandy, on a school trip. Okay. And Joe Goddard from Hot Chip is just over here. He's you've cropped him out. I didn't you? do the cropping. 
I d- I, there's a there's I some serious crop on that because there's a man behind you as well. Yeah, that's Lee Ellis and Tom Branwell in the middle and Scott Bennett, but they've all now got a peroxide blonde hairstyle and just become one person. They've just become you, yeah, um, yeah. For anyone listening to this recording uh, that isn't here in the room, we will put this image somewhere online so you can you can see it. Maybe it'd be the thumbnail of the episode itself. But um, so you had a, so so your family was pretty close. Yeah. And uh, so your your dad was working at at Roehampton. Was he working at the university? At yeah. Roehampton as a professor. Yeah. What was he? What did he teach? Uh, English. Okay. And does that make you? Did, were you quite academic? As a uh, fairly, student. yeah. Um, my mum, who's just over there, um, uh, and my stepdad. Um, my my mum was academic, and my dad as well. And um, yeah, we all of us were kind of interested in in further studies, and and um, uh, were, were fairly academic. Yeah. So you you've got the sport. And we're going to talk about the music in a little bit. Did you have any other interests as a as a sixteen year old that? I mean, they they're the two big things, aren't they? But that that young lads are into either sport or music. But was there anything else? Train sets or <laughs> that kind um, of thing? Girls, I think. Yeah. Uh, oh, that's number that's three. That, that is number three. Yeah. It's quite no, common enough, for yeah. people to be interested in. Yeah. Um, yeah. How did how how did that go? That's a weird way to ask that question. Um, Wait, <laughs> it was it was all right, yeah. Yeah, were you were you good? Yeah, it went okay, thank God, you. I'm good. <laughs> um, I think so. You're sounding like the ideal sixteen-year-old at this stage because you're you're well, just I, good I, enough at sport. I to wasn't be really the ideal sixteen-year-old. I mean, um, I was very focused on music. Uh, I was also academic. But I was fairly kind of outgoing and friendly and, you know, yeah, in that sense, everything was fine. I mean, it's not like there's some dark secret I'm about to read <laughs> that, that wasn't fine. Um, but I but I do remember thinking that it was that I was quite different from other people in that I didn't have any interest in drinking. And that was kind of mainly what people were getting into at like 14, 15, mm. 16. So um, I felt quite, quite separate from people in a way. But sure. I also was very much um, going out and sort of doing all the same things as other people except for the drinking. Mm. So um, that's I'm just thinking about what people do at that age and trying to remember and yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe that was a little bit unusual to, to not be so, to not be interested in doing that. Can you remember the time when you went to like a house party and people were drinking for the first time and being put in that situation of yeah. thinking, I don't want to do that, but everyone's doing it and it kind of feels weird that I'm not. Like you're being kind of pressured into it yeah I've, what i do remember is that it was quite easy actually to to not to not do it because i just wasn't it wasn't of interest to me but i remember maybe younger than this age just finding it a little bit strange where where everybody goes through that except for you and you're you're the one sober person so kind of helping pick up the pieces a bit um yeah literally carrying <laughs> carrying somebody home from Wandsworth Common um, and helping them to not like, be sick or whatever and all that that kind yeah. of stuff. Um, it's quite, it was quite, uh, yeah, that was kind of what was going on, I suppose. Would you but I was a bit younger, maybe 14, I think. Because I was similar. I didn't start drinking till a bit later, but I would maybe pretend that I was drinking. 
Okay. Like I'd, I'd go, yeah, I love beer. And they'd give me the beer. And then I'd just, hi- you know, hide it somewhere. No, I just, I just I, I lived on lemonade. I wasn't brave enough to say, oh, that's not for me. But right. did you, were you just more like kind Straightforward of... Straightforward about it. You were it. just like, no, it's not for me. Yeah. Um, but then obviously everyone wants to know why, why that is. Yeah. So I didn't really know why it was. I just wasn't really just interested in it. But, um, but yeah, I got really bored of the kind of... Eventually I got bored of soft drinks because I was in the pub as much as anybody else. And I was buying rounds and everything, but just lemonade after lemonade after lemonade. <laughs> so sweet. Um, yeah. I, I needed to try something else. Uh, um, I'm trying to think what else I remember about that time. I mean, there was a there was a good art teacher at our school called Mr. Gale, and he was really into music, and he would always play these um, country tapes by a guy called Mickey Jupp that none of us had ever heard of, but Mr. Gale was obsessed with his records. So every art lesson, he would play a different Mickey Jupp album, um, and we would all be kind of forced to listen to them and and I, I quite enjoyed them actually and I, I, I like country music now so maybe that was another kind of influence um, and he he also I remember him playing the Beach Boys Friends album which I hadn't heard at the time before he played it and Pet Sounds was the one that you, know, you would read about everywhere and that I knew really well but Friends seemed like this really strange Beach Boys album and um it was really short as well. It was over in like 28 minutes or something. But Mr. Gale would always talk about how this was the best one. Um, and that, that is one of my favourite records now, which I listen to all the time and go back to. And, and that was sort of, intru- you know, something he introduced me and the other people in that art class to. So that's another memory from that time. Well, you have bought three selections of, of songs and pieces of music that you were listening to back then. Let's play the first first of the three now. Do you want to actually explain a, a bit about what this yeah. record is? We we've chosen one that the the track we've chosen off it is the round stones beneath the earth. Okay. Um, but maybe give just a bit of a background because this is a this is a out of all of these that we've done so far, this is the most fascinating and unusual choice. Okay. Um, so it's Neil Young music from a Jim Jarmusch film called Dead Man. Um, which I think is just the right level of pretentiousness for a 16-year-old to be um, <laughs> interested in as a film and filmmaker, um, Jim Jarmusch. Um, so, it's, yeah, it's Neil Young's soundtrack music from that film, Dead Man. I went to see it um, in the cinema when it came out, and I went with Joe from Hot Chip and various other friends. Um, and the music in the film is very... It's it's very affecting and it's it's um, creates a lot of the atmosphere in that film. There isn't a huge amount of dialogue, so um, the music's pretty important to it. And there is one main theme that that recurs throughout the film, and that's that's um, kind of played on electric guitar with lots of delay pedal, and it's very kind of wild sounding. Um, and there is a really nice acoustic guitar version of it in the film that plays at the beginning, which for some reason Neil Young didn't put on the on the soundtrack and that kind of annoyed a lot of his his fans i remember trying to work out where it was it's the kind of you know it's the main part of the the soundtrack but it's just missing from the album so yeah this this is what we're going to listen to i'm not sure exactly which yes we're going to hear a bit with speaking (laughs) we are we've gone for the speaking bit the round stones beneath the earth the round stones beneath the earth 
stones have lain a long time looking at the sun. The speaking stones. Some believe they descend with the lightning, but I believe they are on the ground and are projected downward by the bolt. pretty intense isn't it yeah i mean it's because that's kind of the whole that's that is quite an accurate depiction of the whole album isn't it really like it yeah um there are bits which are a bit more melodic kind <laughs> of, kind of, but but it is it's a bit like listening to the actual soundtrack from the film mm. rather than just some songs from a film yeah so you can put it on on headphones and be kind of immersed in that sound world it's quite i think um well, i mean most people when i think when that's still 16 are probably still into like melodies and hooks i mean i know i was um, i really was as well yeah. yeah but that's quite um when when would you was it that you saw the film and loved the film and thought i'm gonna get the soundtrack and get into that or, or how did you how did you come across it uh, was it just from seeing the film and you thought yeah i think i'm gonna go and get that i think i soundtrack. was already listening to neil young i think both of my older brothers were were fans of his so i you know i'd hear each album as it came out around that time. This this is the time, roughly speaking, when you know Nirvana were um, big and everybody was rediscovering Neil Young because he was now seen as this kind of godfather of the grunge scene. So each of those records that came out in the early 90s, mid 90s, were things I heard at home and, and liked myself. Um, and then I, I was that little bit older when this film came out and I'm trying to remember the order Maybe I'd seen Down by Law, which is another Jim Jarmusch film with Tom Waits music and John Lurie music. Um, so I went to see the film kind of, I think, knowing roughly what kind of filmmaker Jim Jarmusch was, or maybe this was the first one I saw. Um, but yeah, the, the music was so good in the film and it played such a big part in the in the film that I kind of bought it pretty soon afterwards. It wasn't that I was looking for experimental abstract noodly kind of music but the 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 melodic parts of it are very very memorable as well um as well as the bits you know like what we've just listened to so it was all of that together and i, I guess i would listen to it as a whole yeah cd back then yeah it probably to be fair to anyone here it does it doesn't it's not the kind of thing that you can cut up and listen to little bits of is it, it is a a whole thing were you a fan of soundtracks generally? I think that I was, yeah. Um, around that time, I used to go with my dad to uh, to Kensington Library, which again was nowhere near where we lived, but it had a good <laughs> music library. What was going on in Chiswick? What was... Not that what? much. <laughs> Nothing. Um, uh, so yeah, the, I think the whole of the music industry was going on in Chiswick, but I hadn't realised that <laughs> at that point. Um, yeah, I would go to this borrowing library and borrow lots of CDs um, every week. And some, yeah, got into soundtracks as well around that time. Um, but I was just really exploring so much music. 
I was buying lots of new records that were coming out, new CDs or tapes, um, and some some things on vinyl. But I was also reading about records that have been out f since the 60s or 70s, and you know, discovering those, and just reading lots of books about rock music and soul music, and just just exploring lo lots of the kind of classic recorded history of music. Really, mm. that was kind of what I was doing. As as well as listening to the contemporary bands that were coming out, and I I remember maybe this is a little bit younger than sixteen, but I remember not liking Britpop, right, and not really liking grunge that much. I know I was talking about Neil Young, but um, I found that I was into things that were quite far away from that, like George Michael or something, you know, yeah, things that were kind of anti that sort of um, the sort of the look and the the attitude of of that music, and I think that was maybe my own way of slightly rebelling against what you're meant to do when you're a teenager, like drink and have long hair and wear Dr. Martens, and you know, I yeah. was kind of, oh, that's what other people are doing, so I'll I'll do something else. Have you stuck with with Neil? Are you still a big Neil Young yeah, fan? Yeah, yeah, massive. Neil have Young you fan. met him at all? I have met him. What, um, what was he like? He was really nice. He was very interested in telling me and Al from Hot Chip about um, how good the camera is on what was then like the MacBook Pro or something. <laughs> how Classic he'd Neil. How he'd, how he'd filmed a new video um, just using the the kind of, what, what would you call it, the self-facing camera on, the, on your laptop. Where, where was this? Where was it that you met him and he in started? In Australia, um, on the, the Big Day Out Festival, which is a kind of touring festival where the same bands are playing on the festival in each in each city. So we got taken out by the promoters to a nice dinner and Neil Young was one of the people at that dinner. He wasn't on the same table as us, but um, we were taken over to, to meet him. And um, were you? It was like a kind of... Yeah, like a moment to, to get to say hello to him. But he'd heard of Hot Chip because we have the same booking agent. And so he had been led to believe that we were those guys like Devo. That was how he kind of <laughs> referred to us. Okay. And he was a big Devo fan, as you may know, um, made a film with them and did some music with them in the late 70s. So I think that was the kind of way for our booking agent to make us sound appealing to him. Okay. And he spent the time trying to sell you a MacBook Pro. We didn't have a long conversation okay. and it would be it would have been nice to talk about other things, but <laughs> he was he was just such a fan of that new bit of technology. As he he's always He's a big tech yeah, 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 which people maybe don't think of when you think of Neil Young because he's, you know, a cow the cowboy thing, the country rocker, yeah, rootsy and talking about um, you know, his Toblerone shaped music player. Yeah. That kind of thing is not what you think of. But at um, the same time he does tell you a lot how much he cares about sound quality so you can kind of see yeah and he, he used to like really rage against cds i think when they first came out um so he's he's stuck with his kind of same attitude even if he's a bit confusing yeah <laughs> so at school you as you say it was elliot school yeah was the name of uh, of your high school and it's a school that actually has a very long list of musical alumni um, and Hale and Pace. And Hale and Pace and Piers Brosnan. Yeah. And it was also the school <laughs> from, um, I, I had another fact about it. What is it? Love Actually. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's the film, it's at the end. Right. There you go, everyone. 
worth coming, wasn't it? It was worth coming. Um, but Hugh, the Hugh Grant's is it, is he in that film? Hugh Grant. Yeah. Yeah. His mum taught taught me at primary school. Oh really? Yeah. In in Chiswick, which in is Chiswick. nowhere near Bunny. <laughs> but the music. So this, I don't know if you'll you'll be aware of this, but when um, as a, as a music magazine, we get sent a lot of press releases and things when bands release records, obviously. And your score is a score that first period of time, a lot of it would be mentioned on a lot of people press releases because, and it, it would always name drop Hot Chip and say oh, they, they went to the same score as Hot Chip. Right. These bands include the XX, the Maccabees, Burial, Fortet. Some of so solid crew. Did they? Yeah. What is it about? I mean, I mean, does Elliot have a big music program, or is it just pure coincidence that, that all these bands seem to come from it? Um, there was a really nice music teacher there, Frank Marshall, who was good at encouraging you to do whatever music you were interested in outside of just, you know, classical music, which is what you might expect people to be taught to, um, you know, to focus on maybe. I'm sure that's a little bit of an old-fashioned idea anyway, but he was good at he was good at teaching about kind of modern composition and encouraging people to just use the the rehearsal spaces. They weren't very um advanced. They didn't have much gear in them. They they weren't it wasn't like a really good school for music and the and the teachers were changing every year. Um but when he was there, he was I think he made it seem like a welcome a welcoming environment for people to just use the piano or drum kit or whatever was there and just practice at lunchtime. Um, so there was that, which I think was a really good thing. And then some of the people that were there using the equipment or being in bands were people like Kieran, who went on to make records as Fortet. He was in a band called Fridge with Sam Jeffers and Ardem Ilhan, and they were a couple of years older than us. So we would watch their band, we would be in a band, you know, you'd borrow equipment from each other. Joe and Will Bevan were twins who were maybe two years above me or the year above me. And my brother Angus was good friends with them. And one of them went on to do music as Burial. Mm -hmm. um, so I knew them really well, but it was it was Will's brother Joe who was more um, kind of vocal about being into music. He was, a, he was kind of rapping and right. Will was very quiet. And I didn't know that he made music until Burial Records came out. So even though I knew him and knew his girlfriend and knew his brother, um, it was a surprise to me that that he was, you know, the person behind those Burial Records. And it was, I think it was a surprise to Kieran as well. So I think Kieran Hebden was the first person I knew who had one of the Burial singles. And he l liked it, not knowing that that was the person he knew quite well. Right, been right. At school with him because a lot of people there was a like an internet rumor that burial is Kieran right for a but long that time definitely isn't the case yeah there. yeah because I remember Kieran getting quite angry about it online and saying no this guy is a real guy and give, yeah. him, give him his dues it's yeah. not it's not me it's somebody else yeah he he must have found out fairly early on who it was and then I knew who it was but it, it wasn't public knowledge but it was just interesting that Kieran had bought that record not even knowing it was somebody from you know that he spent time with at school um so how did you meet joe did you meet joe day one of school like early in school or was it a bit bit later on um, can, you, can you remember the moment you met joe goddard who you would yeah yeah um so i met owen clark also from hot chip on day one and i think i met joe in like 
day seven or something. Um, so the second week, he was friends with somebody else in my class, and um, I was quite into wrestling. And Joe and I had a kind of wrestling match at break time. Okay, um, who won that? He did. <laughs> He's Good. bigger and stronger. Um, and that's what I remember about meeting him. I remember. I also remember standing, you know, at the same bus stop as him on the way to school and getting to know him and talking to him and meeting his younger brother. And I knew him from, yeah, from, from very early on. And we would go to gigs together, um, also with Owen from Hot Chip and various other friends. And at some point, where I started to write songs on acoustic guitar, Joe was bit more interested in recording music so I think he was also writing music on electric guitar but initially he said um, did I want to sort of go around and he would record on his four track some of my songs and then I guess he was producing them um, that was part of our kind of musical relationship at that point I had a band and he was in another band actually I just remembered yeah he was he was in a band and he was sort of front person in that band and I was in this other band and we weren't really trying to do music together, but he was recording my my songs. And then at some point he started to write songs and we would co-write things together and do gigs together at school. Sure. So at what point did Hot Chip become the early formations of Hot Chip or be indeed just become Hot Chip? Um, I don't remember exactly what year it was, but it, we were still at school and we maybe we were 15 or 16. And um, we would play like at a lunchtime concert or something, or or maybe at a summer fair we would play and we would do um, a pavement song, Range Life, that Joe sang, and a Spaceman 3 song that I, maybe I would play keyboard and he would play guitar, I can't remember. Um, but we we just had a keyboard that we'd been given by his technology teacher, an old an old keyboard, and he had a guitar and we just both sang and that was th that was the lineup for a while. Right. Guitar, keyboard, and cover versions of these kind of indie songs, um, and then we would, yeah, we gradually started to write songs separately and and together, and you know, just kind of fill in the blanks. I suppose if Joe had written a chorus, I would try and write some verse ideas, and and vice versa, and we would record some of those um, outside with like a recorder recording Walkman that he had from his dad. Um, in a park, you know, one of the early recordings was just two acoustic guitars and vo vocals recorded in the park, so you'd hear the nice sound of the park and the playground and things in the background. And we we kind of liked that sort of textural stuff as well as the the songwriting aspects. Um, I think he was always very interested in production from quite a young age. So um, we were beginning together and and separately to think about those kind of aspects of recording and enjoying having a four track and what you can do with it and then he got cubase and a computer and started producing and recording in that in that way you know um with a sort of i guess a digital way of doing four track recording and multi-track recording yeah can you remember what your first early songs were called can you remember what your first song was called that you that would have been a, a collaboration um they often had really strange names um like made up language or made up words, uh, things like floor or 
I don't know, just things that were that not 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 as in the floor, <laughs> but um, just kind of misspellings of things. Okay. Um, I think post rock music was quite a big influence on Joe, and some of the naming of tracks took on a bit of inspiration from those kind of quite obtuse names you get. Mm -hmm. um, just trying to think of a helpful answer to your question. <laughs> um, well, there was one called Tape Spool Sound, but that was a little bit later. That actually came out maybe when we were 18 or something on a, a label called Victory Garden Records. Um, I feel like I'm like squashing time quite a lot. <laughs> uh, Let's play your second track that you've okay. brought. This is four by Aphex Twin. Shall we? Let's play it actually, and then we'll have a talk about it afterwards. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. For me, you can start to hear a bit of hot chip in it, like a bit of the influence. Yeah. There. Um, how did you first come across that song and when was the first time you got into Aphex? There was a kind of friend who was a bit older my dad was going out with somebody at the time and, and her children were similar age to my older brothers. So the oldest um, son of hers had Aphex Twin Selected Ambient Works Volume 2. And he's, I think I'd read about Aphex Twin in NME or something. And it was just one of these names I knew, but I didn't really know the music. And then I was lent that album because that friend just said, 
I bought it and I thought it was really boring. So you're you're welcome to have it, you know. So I I borrowed it and I thought it was really really good. Um, that's the sort of double CD of ambient music, very very slow, repetitive music, and I I, I really enjoyed it uh, for whatever reason. And my my dad then knew that I liked Aphex Twin and Aphex Twin was doing something at maybe the Royal Festival Hall where he was going to soundtrack Nosferatu, I think. And my dad bought tickets for me and him to go just because he was, in, you know, he was encouraging whatever interest I had in, in music. I don't think he was really an Aphex Twin fan. <laughs> um, and then we got this uh, message from the Royal Festival Hall saying Aphex Twin has not got round to writing the music yet. Um, so it's postponed by six months. And then six months went by and we went to the rescheduled concert and then somebody came out at the front and said, we're really, really sorry, but <laughs> he just didn't bother to do the job. He just didn't write the music. So instead we will play a film that features some Aphex Twin music. And... Um, so I watched that and I really enjoyed it. It was the music from Selected Ambient Works. Um, so it was nice to hear it again on the big screen. And, and uh, <laughs> Then I think the album I Care Because You Do was the kind of current Aphex Twin album, or maybe it had just been out a year before. And that one that we heard the track four from Richard D. James' album, that was the first one that I bought as it was a new, a new release. So I went into Beggar's Banquet in Putney after school and bought that and and uh, I also bought lots of other Aphex Twin music around that time but that was the kind of new the new album so it was the one that was nice to sort of discover as it was fresh and I remember bringing it to a, a friend's house party and wanting us to listen to that and dance to that and you know it was just the music of the time that was very strange sounding and really kind of impressive in his use of instruments and the programming and really kind of playful and and pretty weird as well. Um, so I was quite mesmerised by it, and Joe liked him as well, and it was an influence. It was definitely an influence, that, and then Come to Daddy and Window Liquor and everything kind of in that period um, l following this album were, were big, big records for us, and we would wonder how he made those sounds. Joe was always very envious of the software that he must have available to him. He's like, I can't, I can't get those sounds with, with what I'm working with on Cubase. How, how does he do it? Wh who's giving him this, this <laughs> software? And probably he was making the sounds himself with synthesizers and, you know, patching things in. I, I don't know exactly what he was doing, but um, it was, it was, yeah, it was very inspiring music. Mm. Well, and, and his attitude as well in interviews, how kind of witty he was and how, um, irreverent he was. Well, that track kind of, I think what's great about it is it, it's kind of happy and uplifting and kind of quirky as much as I don't like that word, but without being like saccharine and just horrible and yeah, like just a bit too much, which is something that, you know, Hot Chip have done as well, that, that kind of balance between those two. Were your friends listening to that? Uh, as you say, you discovered that at the time it was coming out. When you were hanging out with friends or going to parties and stuff, were were your friends into Aphex Twin and, and just generally the music you were into or was it all Britpop, Britpop, Britpop? Um, definitely some people were into 
Aphex Twin and Square Pusher and and that kind of electronic dance music. Um, some people were... I was really into Oasis at one point when their first few singles came out and the first album. Um, I went to get the album Definitely Maybe on the day it came out from Virgin Megastore where they played a, a like a session, an acoustic session and signed signed everyone's copy. So I was into that music. Did you, st did you have a signed copy? Yeah, but I didn't for some reason like other, like Blur and uh, other Britpop music. And so some of my friends were going to see Blur at Ali Pali and various other gigs, um, but I I wasn't so into that scene. Not many people were into electronic music, but there were a few at our school who, who were definitely. So what shows were you going to whilst it whilst it wasn't Britpop, what what things were you or were were you not going to shows at quite? No, quite I, yet? I was by this point. Um, I went to see Guru's Jazzmataz, Guru from um, Gangstar, um, at the like festival hall, I think. And I went to see Richie Havens at the Jazz Cafe and Ben Harper. Um, I did go and see Oasis. Um, Where did you see that? Hammersmith Palais. Was it really Larry, or was it? Yeah. <laughs> was it ev was it all the cliches of Oasis? I think they were still quite quite new, and um, I was really into them at that point. It was just really exciting. But I remember, and I'm not just saying this to sound cool or something, but I remember at the end they played "She Said She Said" by the Beatles. Yeah. Like the DJ played it, and I thought I've never heard anything as good as that. It just sounded so much better than <laughs> what I just what I just watched. Uh, just real sort of discovery of like an amazing record. Was that the first time you'd heard that song? Yeah, I'd heard other Beatles music, but I'd never heard that, and it just sounded so good, played loud. Um, Highlight of the night was the song played as you yeah. left. When when I went to see them, when I queued up to um, get the the album signed, uh, they they listened to all of the White album in in the shop before the signing. So that was another kind of introduction to that record. And I remember Liam had trouble with pronouncing and spelling my name Alexis so he just opted for Alex but he <laughs> he he did ask me about three times what, what I was saying each time I said Alexis what what was that <laughs> um, I'll just put Alex um, how did um, no, how did Noel get on with the name he didn't he didn't sign my CD I think you you each queued you for a different one. yeah there was like a, a different queue what was Bonehead's queue like well, Owen got a got given a bottle of Beck's signed by him because <laughs> he didn't he didn't have an album to sign, so he he handed that to him and signed it. Um, that's a fa that's very Oasis, yeah. isn't it? That's, they would have loved that. Yeah, that's uh, you know a bottle of uh, a box of fags. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, no, no. Have you still got the CD? I think it is somewhere. Yeah, I haven't thrown it away or, yeah. or sold it or anything. Thing is, people won't believe it. Well, they would believe it because it's got a spelling <laughs> mistake on it, but. <laughs> Let's play your final track, actually. We'd, let's do this now. This is Royal Trucks. This is perfect, perfectly named because it's from an album called Sweet Sixteen. Yeah, I think I'm kind of cheating. I think it came out when I was probably 17, but um, it That's is called fine. Sweet Sixteen. We'll edit that out. Um, <laughs> although maybe I was still 16. <laughs> it depends when it came out in 1997. Um, I read about Royal Trucks in NME. I didn't really know what to expect from their music. And um, it just there was just a very good review, and, and I, I bought a few of their albums that were out, and 
maybe a year after this, I went to see them a lot in concert. Um, some gigs I went to with Joe and some I went on my own and went with a girlfriend at the time and I travelled around to see them. I was really obsessed with them. But this album, um, Sweet Sixteen, a few years later after it was out, I worked at Domino and Domino had released a lot of their music but this was an album they put out on Virgin Records and it had this very memorable album cover which is um, a photograph of a toilet um, with what looks like vomit in it. I don't really know what's in it. It's a really kind of graphic image and while I was in the Domino office where I was working this lady came in to have a meeting with Lawrence Bell who is the owner of Domino and I was sat I used to sit opposite Lawrence, just me and him in his in this kind of bit of this office, and I had the Sweet Sixteen CD on the on my desk. And this lady came in, and she was just having a meeting with Lawrence, and she said, "What what on earth are you doing? <laughs> you're reminding me of this record." And I was like, "Well, sorry, I don't know what you're talking about." She, turned out she had signed Royal Trucks to Virgin back in 1996, I think, or 95, and this album represented this real kind of low point in her <laughs> in her life because I think it was so difficult to work with and it was this disgusting image on the cover that the, the label didn't want to be the album artwork and you know it was just a r horrible memory for her and she she thought I'd just placed it there <laughs> to um but but I yeah I, I read about them and then I heard a few of their albums I bought loads of their CDs in one go at the music and video exchange in uh, Fulham um, where they were all really cheap to buy and they were all just so different from each other and so strange sounding and and brilliant and they're one of my favorite bands um, this album is slightly more kind of straight ahead sounding 70s influenced rock but some of their other music is much more experimental and and um, hard to describe and define I, th I find the track we're going to play is morphic resonance <laughs> from Royal Trucks is on your new album your new solo album yes you work um, with him on that was he as difficult as as this person <laughs> from Virgin remembered in in your experience no not at all actually um what I should say is on the track that he worked on on this new album of mine he he sent me the parts he recorded in three different locations in Denver where he lives um so it wasn't difficult to work with him in that I didn't work physically with him on, on those sessions. Um, and he he did loads of, you know, he added lots of really interesting things. He kind of organised 
a brass section and a choir and um he did some guitar and, and backing vocals and before he did it though I did work with him in the studio in London he was he was over doing a solo tour and he wanted to know if somewhere to record in London and I recommended a studio where I'd recorded my piano album and then I was one of the kind of guest players on those sessions for his new EP he was recording and he was he was not in any way difficult to work with but he was very unusual in his working methods so he booked the studio I think from 11 in the morning and I arrived at 1 when I was sort of told to turn up and he'd already finished doing everything that he had to do for the record so in two hours of getting in and loading in the drums and everything he'd done the vocal the guitar the bass and his drummer had done the drums and it, it was just now up to me to overdub on top and I, I was trying to understand what he wanted me to do and he was giving me a description that seemed a bit like I was learning hieroglyphics or something. <laughs> it was very confusing. And as I did the first take, he was like, yeah, that's amazing, that's it. We've got it. And then the next person, <laughs> the guitarist who'd driven four and a half hours in traffic from Manchester to, to play on the recording sessions, he went in whilst I went out to get a bottle of water. And when I came back, he was saying to me, I've just done one take and I've driven for four and a half hours and he's he's happy with that. I didn't even get to do a second take. He's just like, yeah, you can f you can go now. So um he was he was strange in in a way, but very um impressive in that he knew exactly what he wanted to do. And he he always seemed like that when I would read about the process of making records. I get the impression with Neil Haggerty and Royal Trucks Records that he will have a concept and then he'll just impose that on the recording session. And as long as it meets with that concept, then that's the record. Rather than, oh, I thought it was gonna sound better if I did this or that that I had planned, but it didn't quite work, I'll try this instead. It's more, it's just is what I intended for it to be. And so it follows a certain pattern. And he has to have that kind of as a guideline for making something. So it might be, this is um, a record about the 60s and this one's about the 70s and that one's about the 80s. And he just kind of um, imposes that on imposes certain rules on the recording sessions and then abides by those rules and then he's happy with the results and I think the results are always really good and really interesting it's not that they're sloppy and he's just rushed through it but it was quite amazing to see somebody work that quickly what were his directions to you that that made the most sense that you thought I okay I know what you want so I'm gonna go and do that well he wanted me to play some kind of electric harpsichord like sound and I didn't I didn't have that but I brought something that was a bit clavinet like and um and he talked about some um seventies fusion records that I hadn't heard as reference points. <laughs> um at that point do you just say, I've got it. Yeah. I, I know I know exactly what you're talking about, Neil. Or do you just fess up and say Well I'd, I I I was just uh, I think I'm quite um I think I'm quite wanting to, you know, in that situation, being such a fan of his music, I was wanting to, to get it right and do what he was after. And um, so I was asking for more, like, is this what you mean? Or, you know, these chords that you've written out, they don't even sound quite like the chords that I'm hearing on on your guitar part, is, is it right? But he was just happy with it as, <laughs> as, it, as it was coming out in my first attempt. Yeah, so I then, at the end of that session, I asked him if he would play guitar on a track of mine called I Feel You. And 
I don't think he would mind me saying that between his session ending and me asking him to do that, he got very, very stoned. <laughs> and then he played my, my guitar and um, it didn't bother to tune it. And he played this really weird guitar solo, atonal guitar solo from start to finish <laughs> over the whole song. And um, and there I was thinking, is he sabotaging this? <laughs> or or does he just not really know how to say... How to play um, the guitar. Uh, yeah, or, or, or like, could you tell me what the chords <laughs> are? Um, and we spoke a lot about the song. He kept saying how much he liked the song. And I thought, oh, maybe, maybe he doesn't really like it and he's just being polite. Um, but then months went by and he was like, this this song, I feel you, it's, um, it's really amazing. And I, I want to actually try again at like doing doing some contribution to that song. I didn't didn't really do it right on the day. So I was really relieved at that point. And that's when he that's when he did it all in Denver and sent it to me and gave me very clear instructions about how to mix what he'd done and take this bit from these seconds to these seconds and use that bit of guitar part. And yeah, he was he was really kind of interesting to work with and, and I loved what he brought to the song when because he had um kind of given you some kind of abstract on his music yeah. given you some abstract kind of pointers and then you'd done it once and got and he'd gone yeah great neck you know next guy up when when he when it comes to you telling him and he's a hero of yours yeah. and you and you love his music and you've grown up with him did you how did you go about directing him did you kind of embody him it a bit? It was just really hard. I was, I was stuck. I was thinking, well, do I just accept that first take, which I think might be hard to use, and say that's what he wanted to play, you know, in the spirit of his kind of music making and not wanting to, to instruct too much. Do I just say, okay, great, and then we leave it at that? Or do I say it's not quite working and this is possibly the only opportunity I'll have to work with this person, it would be a shame to to not get it's results not that are usable. Um, so I tried to get him to do a, a second take and he did an amazing 12 string guitar part, but only for a f like a short bit of the track. Um, he did some backing vocals as well. It was, yeah, it was quite a tense moment and I couldn't really tell what was the right thing to do. Mm. Um, and and that that is an unusual environment to be in, you know, whoever it is you're playing music with, it's hard to tell somebody to do something because you're asking them to be themselves and to play what they would like to play. So I never really know how I feel about that anyway. Just sometimes you have to accept that maybe the finished record doesn't have a part on it that you hoped that person would do something that would be to your liking and maybe it didn't quite work out. But while you're there in the session, you can either, d you can either be the producer and direct them and kind of get what you want at the risk of maybe offending them or falling out with them, or you can just let it let it go. And sometimes it works perfectly, and you don't have to do any of that. And other times, it doesn't. In terms of like the hot chip sound, <coughs> however it's kind of described, you know, but essentially it's an elec electro-based sound. But obviously, Royal Trucks is far from that. It's a guitar punk band. Did you and Joe ever? think you were going to be a guitar band or a punk band or uh, not synthesizers but something more like Royal, Royal Trucks? Well we, we went together to see Royal Trucks a few times and we both loved it but we also liked some other things around that time like Anti-Pop Consortium that were playing um, a similar time to Royal Trucks. We would see different gigs and we would feel like 
oh, what they were doing with the MPC was so incredible, and what they were doing uh, just in terms of their kind of um, kind of I don't know whatever it was, the charisma on stage or Neil Haggerty's guitar playing was so amazing. We would try and combine some of those things into hot chip recordings. And I'm not a very good guitar player, but I loved that kind of music and I would do my best attempt at a strange kind of distorted guitar solo. You hear that a bit in over and over. You know, that was as much influenced by LCD sound system as Devo and Royal Trucks. It was kind of blending these disparate elements together. And I think in Joe, I found somebody who was also happy to have those discordant or disparate elements put together and not somebody who would be saying, oh, I don't get it, what are you doing? That's just weird or, you know, can't we make something that's more pure in sound or style? So um, we were definitely influenced by electronic music, dance music, disco, house, hip-hop, um, and some of the stuff we, we talked about, like Aphex Twin. Um, but it was just always in combination with other things. And also our inability to do things that actually sounded like the records we liked meant that we sounded like ourselves, mm. I think. Yeah, <laughs> a happy accident. Yeah, of, uh, and then we became aware of that quite quickly. So the words started to draw attention to that a bit. And that's why some of Joe's words on the first album were kind of alluding to the idea that we're not very hip hop. We're like going to school in Putney or went to school in Putney and you know, that's not a very kind of hip hop place. So he thought of like a Peugeot as the least hip hop <laughs> car. <laughs> yeah. Um, ways to draw attention to the fact that we do really like hip hop music and we're not making fun of it, but we might look like imposters if we try and be rappers or something. Yeah. So always cutting ourselves down and being quite self-deprecating, yeah. which I think is a is a confusing thing to do. The, the music press want you to tell them that you're the most original band in the world and to look full of attitude and so on. But most people do that by just dressing like the Velvet Underground. And I always felt like that was done already. So we should just get on with being ourselves and, and people can figure out what's going on in the music by listening to it and not, not kind of being led by us telling them this is the look, this is the kind of vision and we, we've invented everything, you know. The three songs that you've, you've picked tonight, they're very eclectic, but they're also very kind of interesting and cool. And, and was there anything, when, when we invited you to come and do this, was there anything that kind of instantly popped in your mind of thinking, oh God, when I was 16, I was listening to yeah. dot, dot, dot. Yeah, there was loads of music I listened to that's less cool than that. Um, but I, I sort of stand by a lot of the music I grew up listening to. I really liked um, the first two albums by The Verve, and they were called Verve at the beginning and then yeah. The Verve. Um, I found that kind of psychedelic rock music that was influenced by funkadelic as well as kind of more kind of garage rock music. I found it really amazing at the time and, and would listen to that a lot. Um, I don't think that's really so cool now, but um, recently I heard some, somebody playing some music on a radio show and I was I just thought it sounded exactly like the Verve and I wondered what it was, or like early Verve. And, um, and it was some new band. And I just thought, oh, I suppose things just kind of... Come back. Come, yeah, come and go. Um, I liked... I don't know, I like loads of music that's not cool. I liked, um, well, I liked Wham. Um, 
still filtering out everything that's just <laughs> too embarrassing. When I was younger than 16, I remember, I think I was 12 or 13, I liked Jamiroquai, and then I, then I discovered Stevie Wonder records and really liked them. I wouldn't have heard them without hearing his music. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah. What, what what embarrassing music to to pick pick out? But <laughs> not all of it's that embarrassing. I think no, it's not. Know, they're all quite. I like a bit of Wham. <laughs> Nothing wrong with Wham. I really like the Style Council, and I still like the Style Council. I remember discovering them, and they were they were no longer a kind of functioning band. But I, I just I thought they were amazing, and that was a band I listened to through that period where probably most people were listening to Pearl Jam and Nirvana and yeah. things like that. Um, I was looking at um, some of the headlines from 96 yeah. uh, today. And I mean, it was all Britpop. I mean, it's obvious to say that Britpop was all of the, it was like TFI Friday. This is when I, the Google yeah. engine told me this. Um, TFI Friday, Jarvis Cocker waving his ass at Michael Jackson. Yeah, I remember watching that happen, yeah. Um, and uh, Euro 96 was, the, I mean, that was, but it was, the year of music was yeah. was 96 and Spice Girls Wannabe. And, and was that 96? That was 96, Okay, yeah. so I went to um, Phoenix Festival then. That was the first festival I went to. So I must have seen, I remember seeing The Prodigy there and um, Ben Harper and Jonathan Richmond was playing. I didn't see him, but Joe saw him and he had just a inflatable guitar. He didn't have a real guitar. Um <laughs> Did he have a backing track? Yeah, he must have done. Unless it was just one song that he was using that as a prop <laughs> for. Um, I feel like maybe Neil Young played it that as well. Pretty good lineup. It was. It was a good lineup. Yeah. yeah. I went. I went with somebody who only remembered that they'd. That basically they'd been looking forward to it so much. This friend of mine from school that he'd put the tickets on his pinboard at home, <laughs> and then when we got halfway a there, a pinboard is very '96, yeah. isn't it? A pinboard. He realised the tickets were still <laughs> on the pinboard. And he had to go back. Oh, did he? Yeah. Oh, man. So that was a disastrous beginning to the festival. And then Joe's dad had lent us a tent and um, we'd had instructions about how to how to assemble it in the park the day before going. And then when we got there, we, we set it up wrong and broke it. So um, that's those are the kind of rock and roll memories <laughs> I have because, because I was teetotal back then. We tend to always finish on the same question, which is... Is there anything that you would tell your, any advice you would give to your 16-year-old self now? Maybe going in on the rounds system as a non-drinker in <laughs> pubs is quite an expensive way to go about your business. <laughs> well, Alexis, thank you very much for coming on the podcast this evening. Sweet 16 is a podcast made by Loud and Quiet. You might also like Midnight Chats, the interview series that's featured guests like Johnny Marr, Laura Marlin, Mike Skinner, Charlotte Gainsbourg, Mac DeMarco and loads of others. Loud and Quiet also make a magazine. Visit loudandquiet.com for more information. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. 
Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. Warbyparker.com covered. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.